I encourage you, please, to turn with me to John chapter 20. We are working right now as a church through the book of Acts, but of course, because of Holy Week, we've taken just a bit of time set it aside that we might focus on both the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. This is the gospel, the good news. There is no other good news. The good news is exclusively that we lost and willfully rebellious sinners might be rescued not by moral effort, not by religious reformation, but by the work of Jesus Christ alone. Jesus who kept every law of God, every law that we did not and could not keep, was crucified, horrifically murdered, not for his own offenses, not for his own law-breaking, but for ours. And the central notion of the crucifixion of Jesus is that he became a substitute for sinners to bear the wrath of God that we justly deserve. Then he was buried and for parts of three days remained dead Though, parenthetically, his spirit was with his father. And then in that part of the third day on Sunday morning very early, death could not hold him and he was raised to a victorious life. The good news is that Jesus Christ crucified, buried, and resurrected is hope for lost sinners. And for most of us who have trusted that, who have staked our claim on that, we come not just on Resurrection Sunday, but every week to be reminded of this truth. We are learning the older we get, and that's for us grown-ups and for those of you who are not quite yet grown-ups, that we need reminding of this all the time. It will not do that we hear this once in a while. We need to be reminded of the good news all the time, for there are messages that masquerade as good news. Your job can masquerade as good news. They can dress up in all the right clothing, all the right attire, and fool you into thinking that it is your good news, that it can rescue you, give you significance. Your spouse can do that. Your children can do that. Us modern-day suburban knights struggle with that perhaps more than anything else. Our children being good news for us. Often we turn to our wealth, relatively speaking, or our good health, or our position, or our family, or a host of other things. And while all these things are good, all these things come down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. They are not our hope ultimately. Jesus Christ crucified, buried, and 
resurrected. That is our only hope. And so we remind ourselves of that continuously, all the time. And we do that corporately together today as God's people on this most special of days, this Resurrection Sunday. We are going to read together John chapter 20. And then we're going to reflect upon the messages found in this text and discern what they mean for us. As always, we want to engage your minds. We want you to learn what this text teaches. We want to get it right. We want to say what it says. But just as much as that, I want you to be affected. I want your affections to be engaged today. And then I want our will collectively to be engaged as well. All three aspects must occur if this is to be a morning that glorifies our risen Lord and that ultimately produces any change in us whatsoever. Our minds must be engaged and changed. Our affections must be touched. What we believe, what we treasure, what we value. And then and then alone can our wills be engaged and then and then alone will our Lord Jesus be glorified and we will find our deepest joy in him. So let's pray toward that end. Lord Jesus, now I pray that by your spirit you will cause our minds to understand this text and that we will embrace it. And every part of us, every nook and cranny of our minds and hearts might be affected. That you'll help us to treasure you supremely. That you will cause us to hope in you exclusively. That you will expose those parts of us that are not in keeping with the good news, that are not honoring to you. That you will uncover those shadowy dark places of our affections, where our fears lie, where our hopes are misguided. And that by the good news of your death and resurrection, you will address these things and change them. And then you will change what we do with our hands and our feet. That our very actions will be in line with what glorifies you the most and with what will bring others the most joy. So help us now, we pray. You are the Lamb of God, slain and raised eternally, and you are worthy to receive honor and blessing and glory from us, your people. We pray these things in faith. In your name, Jesus, amen. Let's read together John chapter 20. This is God's word. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. 
So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me. For I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciple told them, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? 
Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. May God bless to us the reading of his word. So let us now not only discern what this text means, but how we should respond to it on this Resurrection Sunday. Last week we learned in John chapter 19 that Jesus settled our debt. Just before he gives up his spirit in John chapter 19, verse 30, he cries out, It is finished. We talked about last week, this Greek term means that the debts have been settled. The accounts have been reconciled. Jesus has paid our debt. And then he dies. And as we learn from the other gospels, the veil which separated the holy place from the holiest place in the temple was torn in two, thereby signifying that humanity has access to God, not through religious leaders and special clothing with the blood of bulls and goats, but directly through Jesus. Jesus settled our debt. Secondly, we learned last week that Jesus conquered our self-righteousness. This is incredibly important because as we talked about, this disease courses through the veins of every son and daughter of Adam and Eve that have ever lived. And even still, those of us who have trusted Jesus, whose debts have been settled, whose accounts have been reconciled, from whom the wrath of God has been removed, we still struggle with self-righteousness. So we come back to the promise of the gospel that Jesus has settled our debt, that there's nothing that we can do to make ourselves acceptable to God, that we don't have to posture. We do this all the time. We're always posturing putting our best foot forward so that people will think well of us, so very often forgetting the gospel of Jesus. But we remind ourselves of the truth of what Jesus has done that we might push back against this inevitable tendency to establish our own righteousness. And then thirdly, we saw last week that Jesus then rested and waited. Just as God created the world in six days, then rested on the seventh, Jesus took this Sabbath and He rested. He had accomplished the work of redemption. This was the high point of human history. And He rested in the Father's good care and waited until the resurrection would occur on Sunday morning. And that is what John chapter 20 is really all about. Jesus, after having rested from His work of redemption, now must come back from the dead. For if the conquest of Satan working through Judas and the Jewish leaders and the Roman officials, of course, all under the eternal providence of God, if, if that had been the final word, if they had stricken him down, then he would have been a good example 
He would have shown us what it looks like to sacrifice ourselves as good people for the good of others, but it would have been empty. Paul makes this very clear in his discussion in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that if the dead are not raised, because Jesus was raised first, we are yet dead in our sins. We are of all men to be pitied. But the work of redemption had a final step that had to be accomplished. The Son of God had to be raised from the dead to show that He would be the Lord of the living, that He would not just take our debt, nailing it to His cross, but He would be raised from the dead victorious over it, thereby securing for us an eternal redemption. This means that for all of those who have trusted in Jesus, we will live forever with God. The original design gets restored. So what's the direction of human history? That the original design where humanity dwells with God, we get that back. That's what Jesus accomplished through His death and resurrection. Our debt was paid at the cross. And then eternal fellowship and reconciliation with God is brought to pass through the resurrection. So what is the trajectory, the direction, the goal of the redemption of Jesus? That we get God back. And we get Him back for forever. Ever since the beginning of time, We have been longing for the restoration of paradise. That is why all these masquerading gospels that I mentioned to you earlier are so alluring, so enticing for us. God could have made us purely rational, where we chose that thing which made the most sense. Now, God did make us rational. That is part of what it means to be created in His image. But He also made us with affections, the ability to desire and treasure. And we long for fulfillment. We long for pleasure. We desire ultimate satisfaction. And ever since the fall, humanity has been longing for paradise. Where there's no more fear, things lurking in the shadows, the unseen future days that we cannot discern because they lie around the bend, past failures, present struggles with lust, fear of what we see and fear of what we don't. We're longing for something that can salve that, that can be a balm for that, that can heal that. But the truth of the matter is, only God can. Only fellowship with God can satisfy the longings of the human heart. And that is what Jesus accomplishes through His resurrection. 
Forgiveness, justification is made possible both by the cross and the resurrection. For forgiveness would just be theoretical if it wasn't relational. Let me try to explain this to you. You have, I am sure, experienced this at some point in your life where you have done something to another that was truly bad. You abused someone, maybe literally, physically, or emotionally, or with your words. We've all done at least those last two things, used our emotions and our words to hurt another willfully. Perhaps you've defrauded another. Perhaps there's something that you've done you've never told anyone else because it's unspeakable. But when the darkest thing that you have done is spoken as having been forgiven, the the one that you have offended forgives you. They, They grant you release from your debt. You don't just say, I'm sorry, and they say, no big deal. But you actually use the words, I have done this to you. I am in debt to you. Will you please consider forgiving me? And then they speak the words to you, you are forgiven. That feels good. That is liberating. That is freeing. But let's say you did that in a letter, like correspondence, or over email, or much worse, text. By the way, parenthetically, pastorally, talk to each other, not just via text. Talk to each other on the phone from time to time. Pick up the phone and talk to each other like with live voices. But let's just say for for the sake of the illustration that you've been forgiven verbally or via electronic means. That feels good. But it's a much different thing when you come into the presence of that person. Maybe you've reconciled verbally, even over the phone. But isn't it sort of a fearful thing when you, when you know you're going to be in the same room with that person? But what if that person then came to you knowing full well the, the guilt and fear, the trepidation that you feel coming into their actual physical presence? And they were to put their arms around you and look you in the eye with tears, recognizing full well their own tendency towards sin, and assure you by their words and by their gaze and by their embrace that you are released from your debt. You see, that's what the resurrection accomplishes for us. Not just theoretical forgiveness, but we get to come back into the presence of God And He embraces us. And He doesn't cold shoulder us or keep us at arm's length. God is not passive aggressive. The resurrection promises us that one day we will actually be in the very presence of God. And we will not just cognitively understand forgiveness. We will experience it. And there is a sense to which now, because the Holy Spirit has been given to those who have trusted Jesus raised from the dead, that we are already experiencing that kind of forgiveness. 
The resurrection assures for us that we get to be God's sons and daughters. Not just theoretically forgiven, but brought back into his family. We get paradise back. Now, we have not yet fully tasted that. That is part of the promise of Matthew chapter 26 that we read a bit ago as we partook of the elements at the Lord's table. Jesus promises that there is a feast coming and we will sit with him and we will be guests of honor, be part of the family, and we'll worship with him as beloved children for forever. That's coming. The resurrection promises that. Total reconciliation, even better than paradise. We get it back. This text holds out for us great promises. Those of us who have been reconciled and await the finality of our reconciliation. So I am going to speak over you today a benediction. Our very outline will be a benediction. This means that I'm going to speak words of blessing to you from this text. And no matter how sinful you feel today, no matter how confused your mind is, no matter how distracted you are about your $50 ham that's waiting you at home or whatever else may be the case, I want you to try over the next few minutes to receive these blessings from your Lord. May our risen, living Lord give us, first of all, hope when we struggle to believe. The disciples had been scattered when Jesus was arrested in John chapter 18, just like He told them that they would. Even the one that loved Him seemingly mystically the most, John, who wrote this gospel, the one who seemed to be the most bold, Peter, who protested that he would never deny Jesus. But of course, as Jesus said, he did. Even they scattered. John shows up at the scene of the crucifixion. But Jesus tells him that he is to take Mary in and treat her as his own mother. They they know what has happened. They're not left to wonder. Their Lord, who had promised redemption had been arrested and crucified and now all their hopes seem to be dashed. They had forsaken their very occupations. They had walked with Him, hearing from Him, spending countless hours listening to Him in devotion. They believed that He was the promised Messiah, the one that God would send to rescue His people. But even still, they were, they were still looking for some sort of political, governmental liberation. And though Jesus had taught them much about sin and its corrupting influence, they still didn't quite understand that, that atonement was the primary purpose of Jesus' first coming, His first advent. Jesus allowed Himself to be arrested. Jesus allowed Himself to be tried. Jesus allowed Himself to be crucified for atonement was His purpose. To settle the debts of ruined sinners, to cover their sins with His blood. 
and yet they didn't fully understand and they were, they were hopeless. Mary Magdalene, this one that Luke tells us, had been freed from the dominion of seven demons who also seemed to be a woman of means for she helped support Jesus' public ministry. She was deeply devoted to Jesus. And out of devotion goes to the tomb on the first day of the week to finish his embalming, to make sure that he has a proper Jewish burial. It's sort of been in keeping for any good Jewish person, but especially one that had some wealth. She wanted to make sure that he was honored in his death. So she comes to the tomb, and as you read the other gospel accounts, they, they vary a bit in the sequence of things, but, but John picks this up in a particular way because he wants to highlight certain features. He wants to highlight that Mary Magdalene was devoted to Jesus because of what He had done for her. We'll talk more about that in just a couple of moments. She comes while it's still dark. It has been said that not only is this a literal description of what time of day it was, it may well have depicted the mood of the day, especially for the disciples. They saw Jesus as a bright light. In fact, He called Himself the light of the world, and yet for them it all seemed shadows. She comes and finds that the stone has been rolled away, and then she runs back to the disciples to tell them what she has seen. And as far as she understands here, according to John, Jesus' body has been taken away. This would have been scandalous for her. Out of devotion to her Lord, she wants to make sure that His most intimate of followers know what's going on. Maybe they can do something about this. It would not have been surprising to her or to Jesus' followers that the Jewish leaders would have perhaps even desecrated a grave, although this was illegal even in the Roman Empire. She doesn't know what to do. She doesn't know what to think. And in her despair, she does the only thing she knows what to do, and to go back to her friends. So, Peter is confused. John is confused. He is this beloved disciple here that's mentioned in verses 3 and 4. And they have a race to the tomb. So, something's going on here in their, their minds and their hearts. Why did they run? Did they run because they were angry that perhaps Jesus' tomb had been desecrated? Did they ran, run in, in anxiousness that, that maybe some good news would be found there in this garden? Whatever the case is, John doesn't tell us, but they run. They have a foot race. John seems to have been the younger of them and was more mystically devoted to Jesus, and he beats Peter there. He stoops to look into this cave-like tomb and finds no body there. There must have been enough daylight by this point after Mary Magdalene had reported to them that they could see inside. Then Peter, the more bold and impetuous of the two, actually enters into the tomb and finds the linen cloth lying there and the face cloth, which had been sort of neatly rolled up or folded and set aside. If grave robbers had come, they certainly would not have taken time to leave all these expensive linen cloths and expensive ointments and balming powders behind. They would have just taken the whole thing. What John is saying is that that something miraculous had happened. 
You find this in verse 8, because then John enters in and believes. Believes what? Well, at least believes that Jesus isn't there. But he'd already seen that he wasn't there because he'd seen the cloths, as we saw prior to this in verse 5. John seems to be as an old man, for he would have written this gospel in the 80s or early 90s A.D. as he had time to reflect upon this. He's, he's saying more than he just ascertained the fact that Jesus wasn't there anymore. We already know that. At least in some simple way, John believed that, that something miraculous had taken place. This was more than just a grave robbing. But they didn't fully understand, for verse 9 clarifies for us, that they didn't fully understand the Scriptures that He must rise from the dead. And in wonder, they go back to their homes, trying to discern what is going on. Now, Peter and John, for the rest of their lives, would have reflected upon this moment. As you begin to look at the early preaching of the book of Acts, Peter and John are the leaders And the central feature of their preaching is that Jesus has been raised from the dead. This moment was not lost on them. It changed them for forever. And it birthed the church of Jesus Christ that has persisted for 2,000 years just like Jesus said it would. The gates of hell cannot prevail against His church And the resurrection forms the catalyst for that. The resurrection of Jesus gave hope to these struggling disciples. And so I say to you, may our risen, living Lord, who sees us right now, who is receiving worship from you as you listen and meditate upon His truth today. May our risen, living Lord, who is watching over us, grant us hope when we struggle to believe. I was talking to someone the other day, actually a parent of one of my son's friends, This friend is being raised in a basically Judeo-Christian home, but he's struggling with some elements of his faith right now. And she wondered if it was normal for a little boy like this, almost 11 years old, to struggle with his faith this early. And I said to her, I do too. Now, she sort of sees me as like this holy man because I have REV in front of my name in the phone book somewhere if they're still existing. But the truth of the matter is, I'm just like everybody else. And if we're being honest, we all struggle. There are moments whenever we struggle with the notion, is all of this really true? I don't want to ask you to raise your hands, but just rhetorically I will ask this question. How recent was it that you actually posed the question inside of your own brain, is all of this stuff really true? That happens to me pretty often. I know the Bible pretty well. I spent a long time professionally studying it. 
I know the ins and outs. I could kick your butts in a Bible quiz. Just take me on. I am kidding, by the way, if you don't know me well. But I would. But do you know that theological or biblical apprehension doesn't necessarily free you from any religious doubts or doubts about the reliability of your faith? Some of you this very week, if you're being honest, have struggled not only with the notion as to whether this stuff is true, like the verifiability of the Bible and the stories contained in it, but even moving beyond that, you've struggled this week with whether or not you belong. There's so much sin that's still in us that it causes us to doubt. We wonder, if it's true that I belong to God, that I've trusted in the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, how can I still do these things that I do? In secret, why does my mind go there? How can I have such feelings of hatred for people around me? How can I be so selfish and so unkind? How can I still struggle with these feelings of greed and lust? How can my words be so sharp? How can I still love myself so much and still struggle to love people around me? How can I so often have so little devotion to God? You ever pose the question to yourself, do I do more than just believe in Jesus? Do I actually love Jesus? I had a battle with that yesterday in prayer with my Lord. Jesus, do I really love you? I believe in you. I'm in awe of you. It wasn't one of those days where I was struggling with believing the Bible. It was one of those days where I was struggling with or not. I had any affection for Jesus at all. We've all been there. And we'll be there again. But what does the resurrection hold out to us? It holds out to us hope when we struggle to believe. You will be there again. Maybe today. But you don't have to fall apart. You don't have to go into the pits of despair. You don't have to crumble and become undone. The resurrection of Jesus is verifiably true. There is no other explanation for the empty tomb, for the testimony of the preaching of the apostles, and the existence of Christ's church two millennia later, other than the fact that the resurrection is true. It is a central feature of our faith. And the resurrection holds out hope for each of us when we struggle to believe. So my friend, if recently, or now, or in hours soon to come, you struggle to believe the good news or that you have been made a participant in the good news, look to Jesus, the risen, living Lord, and find hope when you struggle to believe. Jesus knew His people would struggle with faith. Faith is not this kind of thing 
that climbs and grows and never wanes or decreases. It's not like that. Like the waxing and waning of the moon, it ebbs and flows. Now, over time, it grows progressively. We learn over time, decades into our faith journey with Jesus, to reflexively turn back to Him when we doubt and struggle. And yet there are still dark days. There are still moments of unbelief. And it is not those moments when you measure the strength of your faith. It is not in those moments when you look back to a prayer that you've prayed, or you look to your family heritage, or even to your good efforts. When you struggle to believe, or you struggle to believe that you belong, look to Jesus. Do not look to subjective things. Look to Him, and He will give you hope. Here's what this might look like in a prayer. Lord Jesus, You have been raised from the dead. You will live forevermore. You are at the right hand of the Father, helping me right now. You know how weak I am. Help my unbelief. And He will answer that prayer. May our risen living Lord give us hope when we struggle to believe. Secondly, may our risen living Lord give us peace when we overcome with fear. Mary, in verse 11, after John and Peter go back to their places, she stays and she weeps. This has been said before, but it bears repeating. It is an interesting feature of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that they give so much attention in the final days of Jesus' life here on earth to the women who followed him. This is significant because back in these days, a woman's testimony held very little weight in legal terms. If there were to have been a legal hearing, they always looked for men to give testimony. Women were seen as second-class citizens. It is interesting as you look through human history where the church of Jesus Christ persists and the Bible is understood and embraced under the power of the Spirit, the condition of women is elevated. These women were devoted to Jesus during His ministry and would be through His death and now His resurrection. And the gospel writers lend great weight to their testimony and to their experience. Mary, who was so thankful for having been freed from demonic oppression, and not just normal demonic oppression, like seven demons, like a full amount. Satan wanted Mary Magdalene. But what had her Lord done? He had said, you are mine. And then she became his. She became a devoted follower of Jesus in every proper sense. But she still doesn't understand as she stays behind weeping. What does God do? He sends her to angelic messengers to tell her 
that she will not remain hopeless. We know from elsewhere in the Gospels that they proclaim His resurrection. But God doesn't just send the angelic messengers to cause Mary to wonder. Jesus, the Son of God, shows up. She initially thinks He is the gardener. And out of devotion, she says, if you've had something to do with this, if you've been complicit in removing His body from the tomb, just tell me where you've taken Him, and I'll make sure that He's taken away to a place where He won't be disturbed anymore. That's what she understands at this point. And then in verse 16, Jesus says to her, Mary. And just like in John chapter 10, where Jesus says that His sheep know His voice and respond to Him, Her eyes are opened, her ears are opened, and she sees that it is Him. And Jesus says to her, don't be clinging to me. I have not fully, finally ascended to the Father, though that is beginning to happen. In my full now bodily resurrection, I will be going to Him. But it hasn't fully taken place yet. Right now... Rather than weeping and wonder, go tell people, especially my followers, that it's coming. The work of redemption has come to completion in a sense that I've been raised from the dead, but I will now go to the Father to be with Him and continue my ministry in and through the church. Mary Magdalene then goes back to the disciples and proclaims what she has seen. The happiest words she could ever speak, I have seen the Lord. What did the disciples need at this point in their existence? They needed hope when their faith seemed to be dashed against the rocks. What did Mary need? This one who was so devoted to Jesus, who had liberated her from Satan's dominion, she needed peace. This is looking ahead just a little bit, but three times Later on in this text, when Jesus encounters His disciples, verse 19, verse 21, verse 26, He says to them, peace be to you. This was the greatest of Jewish blessings. Shalom. May you be at peace with your Creator. Israel felt this existentially in their being. For they recognized just how sinful they were. Their whole religious system reminded them over and over again of how sinful they were. But when their sins were remitted, taken away, and the priest looked them in the eye and said to them, Shalom, peace. He was saying to them, you you can find reconciliation with your Creator. And that's what Jesus is saying to Mary here. All the sad things, I'm undoing them. All your fears, I will remove them. All the shadows you see ahead, which crowd into your, your mind and compel you to disbelieve, I will dispel them 
And Mary, much like Peter and John, would for the rest of her life reflect upon this most intimate of moments, this holy moment where Jesus came and addressed her fears. I would say, maybe even psychologically speaking, that I have some kind of anxiety disorder. Probably if I sat down with a counselor long enough, I would get diagnosed. I'm pretty confident of it. Even going back as far as I can remember, I've been a pretty scared guy. I get anxious really easily. I've told you some of these things before. But when I was a kid, I was always afraid that at night our house would burn down. So I would make sure that our baseboard heaters had nothing against them. Like I would get up several times a night to make sure of that. We kind of lived out in the country and I was afraid that not only would our house burn down, but that robbers would come in. Uh, So I would get up and check our door locks several times a night to make sure that they were locked. Uh, I was afraid that that my dad didn't make make enough money and that we would run out of food. Uh, I was afraid of all kinds of things. I remember when I was on vacation with my parents, we would always take our Airstream trailer and drive out west to go to the mountains. I would ask my parents several times during the vacation, do we have enough money to take this vacation? I mean, these were not normal things for a six or seven-year-old, but that's what I was like. These things persisted in different ways into my teenage years and even still today. It's amazing how I can take something so small and turn it into something so big. They may all struggle with this. So let me just be very honest with you. Um, I haven't seen this person at a public service in a few weeks. I probably said something to offend them. They probably hate me. I'll never see them again. They'll spread gossip, slander about me. I'll probably end up on the news. I'll go to prison and die a pauper. Now, you, you might think that, that I don't really think those things, but I do. I know it's irrational, but it's amazing how quickly my mind can go to worst-case scenario. And it's amazing that even a person like me who knows so much about biblical truth, how so often it doesn't seem to, to do much to help me when I'm so scared. Now, I, I know better. I know. I know what I should do when I'm scared. I'm getting better at not only turning to the Scriptures when I am afraid, but but turning to people who I know will tell me the truth. Because it's interesting when somebody who also knows the truth tells you what you already know. Incredibly powerful. What does Jesus do here in this moment? He, He comes to Mary in her moment where she has no peace whatsoever when she's not tranquil, And he speaks words of peace when she is overcome with fear. So let's turn this into a prayer like we did with the first blessing. Lord Jesus, you who are risen, Lord Jesus, you who are alive forevermore and see me, you know my tendency toward overwhelming fear. I know it's irrational. I know the worst case rarely comes to pass, but my heart is gripped with fear. And I know your word tells me not to be anxious, not to trust in myself. So grant me your peace. Speak words of peace over me. He will answer that prayer. 
My friends, the Lord Jesus' resurrection, it gives us hope when we struggle to believe. It gives us peace when we are racked by fear. And lastly, it gives us courage to join him on his mission to rescue sinners. You see, part of God's plan of redemption is that he would employ reconciled sinners. Sinners to whom he is granting hope. Sinners to whom he is granting peace. To bring them into this company of ambassadors that we will speak the gospel. The resurrection of Jesus, the one who was crucified in our place, the only hope for sinners that we would speak this message to the world. And so he comes to his disciples and three times tells them, peace be with you. They are hiding away. They're worried. If the Jews could get to their leader, they certainly could get to them. He knows they're struggling to believe, so he comes and says, look at my hands. Most likely Jesus was nailed through the, the wrist bones that would have held him. Look, look at my hands, my wrists. Look at my feet and look at my side. And they know it's him. And they're glad. Again, he says to them, verse 21, peace be with you. But he doesn't leave it there. He's going to engage them in mission. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. But he's not going to leave them alone, as he promised them back in John chapters 14 through 16 and teaching them about the helper of the Holy Spirit. He wouldn't leave them as orphans. He would come to them in the person of the Spirit. And so he breathes on them and says, receive the Spirit. This is sort of like an initial down payment on what will come to fulfillment at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 when the Spirit comes in fullness. Why would the Spirit be given to them? Not only to give them peace, but so that they can go into the world and help people with their problem. What's their problem? Sin. Sin separates them from God. Sin leads them to believe that they can be their own gods, that they can find satisfaction somewhere else. Jesus came to remind us that only God can satisfy us. And God satisfied His own wrath by pouring it out on the Son so that when His wrath is satisfied, we can be reconciled to Him and find satisfaction forevermore. So He grants them the Holy Spirit so that they will be at peace and know they are reconciled to God and so that in the power of God, the third person of the Trinity, they can then go out and proclaim the good news to others that their sin might be dealt with as well. Thomas wasn't there. Maybe it was just the ten. Judas was dead. Thomas was missing. Thomas is really doubting. In fact, there is an adjective which is often appended to his name to remind us of what he was like. He was doubting Thomas. If you grew up in Sunday school back in the day, there was a song about Thomas. Like, I don't remember a song about, like, Bartholomew, but there was a song about Thomas. Why? Because he doubted. But Jesus loved Thomas. And despite Thomas doubting 
fearful proclamation that unless he sees the marks in Jesus' hands and is able to actually thrust his hand into the side, that gaping wound from the spear of the soldier, he will never believe. Eight days later, counting that first day of the week, it would have been the next Sunday, Jesus comes back to them, speaks peace again. Jesus knows their condition. And then he says to Thomas directly, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and if you'd like, place it in my side. But you must believe, Thomas. And then what is Thomas' confession? My Lord and my God. He not only believed that Jesus had been resurrected, he recognized Jesus for who he was. Son of man and Son of God. Second person of the eternal Godhead. This is not just some sort of religious proclamation like, oh my God, I can't believe this is the case. No Jew would have spoken in such a way, offending one of the dearest of the Ten Commandments. This was not a religious proclamation. This was not just an acclamation of surprise. He's speaking directly to Jesus. What's his proclamation? What's his confession? You are my Lord and you are God. And Jesus does not deflect this. He accepts it. And he says, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And then John tells us the very purpose for writing this gospel. These things are written down, verse 31, so that you, us, that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. What happens when we embrace Jesus as Savior and God? We receive life. But that is not something to be hoarded. That is something to be shared. But it's scary to share it, isn't it? We live in such an evidential society, culture. People believe things that they can taste and touch, see. We're proclaiming a message that is old, ancient. And even beyond the issue of believability, this this ancient story, we're telling people bad news too. Because the good news makes no sense if there isn't bad news. And the bad news is that we are all in debt to God and deserve His wrath and will be punished eternally if we trust ourselves. That's bad news, and nobody likes to hear that. And so we don't like to talk about it. And after all, what are the two things we are not supposed to talk about? Religion, politics. But Jesus is saying to his disciples, you will not be alone. I have given you my spirit. He will empower you as we find played out in our study of the book of Acts that we're going through right now. They are to receive courage to go proclaim this good news that God reconciles sinners deserving of his wrath and instead makes them his children that they might embrace him and love him for forever. And so here is where our volition gets engaged. Here is where where mission comes into the scenario. Those of us who are 
hoping in the risen living Lord, pushing back against unbelief. Those of us who are struggling progressively with fear but looking to the one who gives us peace, what does the world around you need? Your parents, your children, your siblings, your neighbors, your coworkers, what do they need? They're longing for hope, they're longing for peace, and they're looking for it in all the wrong places. Who is the only one who can give it to them? It is Jesus and Jesus alone. Risen Savior, God of eternity, He alone can save. So what do we need? We need courage to join with Him. He compels us to join Him on this mission. But we need to take courage that our risen living Lord is with us. Ultimately, this is not our mission. It's His. What might this look like in a prayer? Lord Jesus my risen living Lord who sees me now, who knows the needs of my neighbors, who deserves to be glorified as the Savior of mankind, will you grant me courage to open my mouth and speak to my neighbor, to my coworker, to my family member? Lord Jesus, I fear. I fear recrimination. I fear being rejected. I fear being laughed at. But you're the only hope for this person. Help me. And he will. And so, in closing, may I speak these words of blessing over you. And as an act of faith, I encourage you to receive them. May our risen living Lord give us hope when we struggle to believe. May our risen living Lord give us peace when we are overcome with fear, and may our risen, living Lord give us courage to join Him on His mission to rescue sinners. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, on this high and holy day, this Resurrection Sunday, may this Easter meditation help our hearts. You are our risen, living Lord who sees us. Give us hope when we struggle to believe. Give us peace when we are overcome with fear. And give us courage to speak the good news that one has died for us and has been raised from that death and is our living Lord, God of eternity, watching over us. May we take courage in your power to proclaim you You tell us in the word that you are with us even to the end of the age. And so may we believe that. You, our risen living Lord, are with us forever. So help our unbelief. Calm our fears. And help us as we join you on your mission to save. We pray these things, Jesus, for your glory and for our collective joy and for the joy of those that we will tell. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing.